0: And welcome to another episode of In Plain English. I am your host, Jamie Moffa, and today uh, we are going to be discussing the paper 5 MEO DMT Modifies Innate Behaviors and Promotes Structural Neural Plasticity in Mice by Sarah J. Jefferson et al. Um, Here to discuss this paper with us is our expert guest for today, Alex Kwan. Alex, uh, would you like to introduce yourself?
1: Yeah, I'm glad to be here. Uh, So right now, I'm an associate professor in the um, Magnix School of uh, Medical Engineering at Cornell University, just in Ithaca, New York. Uh, Yeah, my lab has um, recently, several years, been interested in research in psychedelics. Um, Yeah, I'm glad to discuss the paper here.
0: Yeah, we're glad to have you. And then joining us as our layperson guests are um, Raven and Asmodeus. Uh, Would you each like to briefly introduce yourselves? Oh, yeah. Uh, I'm Asmodeus.
2: I am half of the Smoking Out the Closet podcast, um, where we talk about cannabis and the
3: LGBT community. Uh, I'm Raven. Uh, The other half of the podcast, we also work in the uh, cannabis industry.
0: Great. Well, without further ado, let's get into the paper.
1: Uh, Well, first of all, I want to mention that this is not a published paper yet, uh, but this is uh, what's known as a preprint, which means that we have completed a study, and you know we've written up the results, and we put it up on a preprint server, uh, so it's shared with the public. Uh, but on the other hand, it hasn't gone through the full peer review yet, uh, which uh, will surely change the paper somewhat. Um, although, again, it's you know it's good enough that we thought uh, is uh, we can we can share it. So the premise of the paper is that uh, a couple of years ago, in my lab has another study showing that if we give the mouse a single dose of the psychedelic serocybin uh, to mice um, then we can observe some uh, noted uh, neurite outgrowth or growth of dendrites uh, which is an indicator of the uh, amount of neural connections in the brain um, so we show that by uh, injecting mice uh, with a, a psychedelic dose of serocybin and then later on we use optical imaging to track these neural connections which are known as dendritic spines in the brain uh, over time and then there we found that it has a fairly uh, rapid effect and a long-lasting effect on the dendritic uh, neural architecture within the brain of the mouse. So then following up the study, one of the uh, questions that we have is that could another uh, related type of classical psychedelics um, have these similar kind of uh, effects on neuroplasticity? And then uh, moreover, we were quite intrigued by the compound 5 methoxy DMP because uh, Phymethoxy-DMT has some different characteristics than psilocybin, even though they're both classical psychedelic. Uh, One of the key differences is that it's a much shorter-acting psychedelic. So there's certain advantage uh, for having this type of uh, uh, compound uh, where if you eventually want to bring it to clinic, you might want an action to be shorter. And moreover, chemically, it's also quite different. They target uh, with a certain bias over some subtype of uh, serotonin receptor that are quite distinct to psilocybin. Um, so that's sort of the starting point on you know, why we wanted to um, test the effects of 5-methoxy-DMT in mice.
0: Can you actually give um, a little bit of an overview of like what you mean by neuroplasticity and, and why is this concept important um, for what you're studying?
1: Uh, definitely. yeah. I think that's, that's actually a good starting point. Uh, I think take a step back to look at the bigger picture. You know, psychedelics recently have received a lot of attention uh, as potentially being useful or beneficial for treating mental illnesses, uh, particularly depression. Then these are longer lasting effects that typically uh, arise uh, on the orders of days and then maybe uh, last quite a long time as well. Um, Highlight clinical trials show that the benefits can last for on the orders of weeks to months. Um, And these are timescales that are quite distinct from what's actually uh, the more commonly associated effects of these compounds, which is the psychedelic trip, which is much more acute. But that happens between anywhere from three to six hours. So there is really a mystery here on how a drug that has these really acute quick effects uh, that lasts for three to six hours and then the drug is gone from the body can then elicit some longer uh, benefit for mental illness. And I would say one of the prevailing and leading theory right now is that perhaps in addition to those acute um, perceptual effects and cognitive effects, these compounds could also enhance neuroplasticity in the brain and then la- leave a lasting change in the brain circuitry that then is what drives those beneficial effects. Uh, one way to look at that would be to go and directly uh, measure uh, the presence of these neural connections, which is uh, something that we can do in the lab by imaging uh, neurons at cellular resolution. Yeah, so I think this is, uh, I think, a good um, introduction to you know why I think plasticity is an exciting area of study for psychedelics.
3: Now, uh, I do have a question on the more of the effects of the DMT, because I was trying to read the paper, and to me, it read more like radio instructions, it was kind of confusing. <laughs> um, so if I recall correctly, with the uh, paper itself, it was saying that the DMT had both a short onset effect, but also a short like, lasting effect on mental health, if I read that correctly, or am I, am I backwards on that one?
1: Uh, so this is a good point and this is i think an unknown right now in the field and it's a big debate and why we want to do this study um, so as i mentioned the 5-methoxy dmt has a much shorter time course so psilocybin three to six hours but if um if one was to smoke 5-methoxy dmt the effect could arise within minutes and it could be gone within 20 minutes so that acute effect is much shorter. People describe it as something like, oh, I'm being strapped to a rocket and blast off to space. I and mean, that's some one type of description about that effect. It's just that rapid and that um, kind of fleeting. So the, the open question is whether, yeah, if you have a short acute effect, whether some of the plasticity outcome might also be short. Are those things linked? Or maybe there's a scenario where they're not linked. Uh, maybe the duration of that acute effect and the duration of the benefit are not coupled. So that's actually an open scientific question, and one of the also motivations of why we want to do this study. Uh, Because if you push it to the extreme, there's also now a lot of companies trying to invest in the so-called non-psychedelic but serotonin 5HT2A agonists. Can you even completely remove the trip to which I would then say the acute duration is zero, but still maintain that mental illness benefit? Uh, so that's one of the things we also want to test here, whether a uh, shoulder-acting compound, whether that plasticity effect could, we can see is also shoulder long.
3: Okay, cool.
1: And then just to before we go further, I also just want to of that. Like, this is a common misconception. A lot of people, um, so DMT is actually a different compound than flat methoxy DMT, even though the names are very similar. Um, DMT is the commonly um, more associated with the um, as an active ingredient in the ayahuasca um, from South America, or the brew that you can drink. Uh, where 5-methoxy DMT is a different compound, uh, most commonly found in the, uh, in the Sonoran Desert toad, uh that live in Arizona, New Mexico, and uh, northern Mexico, uh, they have different sort of properties. They're actually both short-acting, uh, but they have uh, different uh, types of uh, effects, perceptual effects, cognitive effects, emotional effects on
3: humans. That's good to that's good to know on that sorry. I
0: have a quick question. Um, can you I assume you can synthesize the five Methoxy DNT rather than having to go out and find toads.
1: This is a very uh the, the toad the whole toad story is fascinating. Uh I don't think I can retell it to its justice. But if you wa- watch uh, Hamilton Pharmacopia, he has uh two to three episodes on the five methoxy dnt and how they, you know, discover it and the whole history behind it. Uh but a natural source that Uh, there's several natural sources but the most prominent one is the toad and then to do it what you need to do is it's is 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 part of the in the venom right it's in the toad's gland you just squeeze it and then it shoots out these white substances that you then dry and then you will smoke it uh because uh um it kind of i think it gets rid of the toxin on the other hand it also uh, can can uh, bypass your first pass metabolism in your body to be able to um get the drug into your head. Yes, uh, there's actually a big conservation effort right now to not capture the toad, to get the 5 methoxy DMT because the toad are dying. Even though the process itself doesn't necessarily kill the toad, but a lot of people end up killing the toad doing this. Um, so yes, I fully support synthesizing it. You also know how much it, how much there are, you know, you can weigh it, it's much more pure, you should definitely do that. Um, so, I mean, moving forward, I mean, one of the um, first thing that we did in the study then, uh, you know, given this background and the interest in this compound is, uh, uh, there's not a whole lot of actually study of this compound in animals. I think a lot of the study in uh, basic research has been focused on other psychedelics like psilocybin and LSD. So, the very first thing we did was actually uh, give these compounds to mice and observe a fairly classic behavior uh, output that the mice would do when they uh, receive a psychedelic compound, which is called the twitch response. Uh, so, this is a very well known phenomenon since the 1960s, uh, where if the mouse received psychedelic, they would twitch and move their head very rapidly uh, to the order of about 90 times a second. This very quick movement of the head is a a natural response, so you don't have to do anything uh, to the animal to get this response. And it really showed that this compound is psychoactive and it allows us to measure a dose response curve. If you give the animal different doses, you can watch this behavioral response to learn that, oh yeah, okay, this is the dose where we can start to elicit a psychoactive effect in the animal. Um, So that's one of the first things we did. And then to measure the head twitch here, we use a um, system that's uh, initially uh, developed uh, by Javier gonzalez mizo at Virginia Commonwealth University, uh, where we put a magnet on the mouse's ear Anyway, the, this is a magnet-based system uh, where uh, we put the animals in an electric coil, so when the animal's head moves and the magnet moves, then they generate current. So it allows us to automatically and electrically detect the head movement. Uh, and then, yeah, the experiment that we did first was to give the mouse different doses of 5-methoxy DMP uh, to see how it changes the timing and the number of the head response. We also gave it as a control. Uh, just vehicle, so nothing, and then we also gave it a dose of psilocybin that we know would work, um, and then look at how these um, different concentrations of the drug uh, would affect the mouse's behavior. Um, so, as you can see, uh, one of the things that we found, two of the thing, key points here is that one is that, yes, if we give more and more thiamethoxy DMT, you see that the mouse twitched the head more and more, uh, suggesting that the drug is uh, dose-dependent and psychoactive. And then the other thing that we see is that if you compare to serocybin, no matter what dose we gave, the 5-methoxy-DMT uh, always have a shorter duration of action. So the um, what that means is the mouse will twitch their head, but always for a shorter period of time than if we give them s- serocybin. So it seems like even in the mouse case, this is related, right? So in the human case, the, the effect is a lot, a lot more brief uh, for the human. So the psychedelic trip of 5-methoxy-DMT, same thing for the mouse. They also twitch their head but for a much shorter period of time.
3: Now, uh, with the, the whole like, theory of like, with it working towards, with um, the hypothesis, I should say, of um, it working towards mental health, um, are you guys looking into that with the mice study at all? Um, or is it just like a next step after the, this paper has uh, been made?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. Um, another like a motivation for this study to start is that uh, there has been a couple of, clinical trials starting now for methoxy DMT. Uh, as I mentioned, it has some attractive properties, particularly because of the short duration of action, like just in a short trip. So if you need to go in the clinic to receive this drug, the time that you need to spend there is a lot shorter than, say, psilocybin, where you have to spend several hours there at least. Uh, so there's a couple of companies, including um, GH uh, Science over in Ireland, and then Echle-Sytec is in the UK is another company to start to test this drug. And the reason is there's also a lot of uh, there's a good amount of recreational use of methoxy DMT, and then uh, there are anecdotal reports from some of those uses that the drug could also potentially be useful for if, if a person is having depressive symptoms. So there has been a, at least one phase one clinical trial completed to show that the drug is mostly uh, have a decent safety profile, and now they're ongoing phase two clinical trial to test primarily for depression. Uh, In the lab, in my lab, though, yeah, the question you asked, though, is whether, you know, my lab's research, how does it relate to the clinic and whether it can translate? Um, I see this um, two uh, potential uh, segue there that would be helpful. Uh, One is that. Eventually, we'll get to like when do these drugs elicit um, and seem to enhance neuroplasticity. So if we know that time period and when the plasticity enhanced, then one might then that might inform clinical work on when might be the best time to uh, have assisted psychotherapy to further integrate that type of uh, uh, experience that arises from the enhanced plasticity to so inform the time period uh, to which the drug uh, is maybe performing exerting its beneficial actions. Um, and then the other use I, I see for this type of research is that um, we can uh, potentially use what we find in the brain as a further biomarker. If we know that this is what the, this drug does, uh, we can find and uh, evaluate other compound that might be a better a drug uh, with even five fewer side effects. I'm
3: definitely excited to see like what kind of comes out of this research and everything. Because speaking from experience in my family, like a lot of us are veterans and everything, and so I would love to see how that could even further help them, like some of the PTSD and everything?
1: Yeah, I think uh, the current clinical trial, again, it's much more advanced for CO2, uh, but the result so far has been quite exciting. Uh, compared to current form of treatment, the most uh, well-known and common one are Prozac and other forms of uh, SSRI, uh, which is the serotonin uh, reuptake inhibitor. Uh, the psychedelic uh, results are tends to be a lot more rapid. so the response to the compound is a lot more quicker. Uh, whereas for SSRI, you have to take them daily for several weeks before some of the effects would kick in. And then moreover, it's also much more sustained. So with all, just one or two doses, it seems like this decrease in the depressive symptom can be much longer. Again, whereas SSRI, that kind of medication, you have to be taking it every day. So there's a number of advantages to really excite the people in psychiatry. Although I, I have to say the current clinical trial are from smaller number of people. I think the biggest uh, trial is around 200 people by Compass Pathway, and then there are some smaller ones in Johns Hopkins with about 50 or 60 people. Uh, so they still have to do that gold standard phase three clinical trial uh, with several hundred or maybe even up to close to a thousand people to really get that nailed down uh, before I think we, we, we have further evidence, but it's very exciting.
2: I would be interested too, um, as somebody who has like uh, medication resistant depression, um, I've been on all sorts of different antidepressants. How people like myself, how the psychedelics would help more compared to like traditional medication.
1: That's where I see the main um, advantages is actually for uh, treatment resistant depression type of cases. Uh, because uh, actually, the current type of treatment like SSRI or other forms uh, like electrocompulsive therapy. Uh, they are somewhat effective. I mean, you cannot say they're not effective and they're used as treatment, but they're only effective for a fraction of people and they're a subset that don't really respond. And then I think the opportunity of a psychedelic is that it has a very different mechanism of action. It works by targeting different brain receptors. Um, and it's not really stimulating the brain the same way as ECT. So through the different mechanism of action, just the way it operates, I think there's a good chance that uh, it might affect a different sector of people. Uh, with uh, different kinds of maybe even depressive, depressive symptoms. Um, at the end, it might just give the clinician another tool for treating depression that might um, in order to get uh, options in their arsenal uh, rather than straight up saying that, oh yeah, it may be more effective or less effective than SSRI. I think that's yeah perhaps a better way to view it and another reason why I think it's exciting.
0: I'm curious about these clinical trials, not to get too derailed. We'll get back to the paper in a second. But are the clinical trials for depression involving also like a therapist or someone guiding the person through the trip
1: yeah so that part varies um so uh there are uh trials where the uh the role of the medical professional is minimal as in they're there uh, but they're acting as more uh of a monitor uh, and less so of an active psychotherapy role and then there are other trials where the medical professional is much more active. Um, so the uh, case for the psilocybin is the one that's sort of less active, uh, particularly the ones from Compass Pathway, which is the company leading the phase three clinical trial, and they quite explicitly try to have it so that the, it's more of a monitoring role. But still, you have to understand, it is still quite different from the current medication where you would uh, maybe take a bottle of pill and go home and take it yourself. Uh, in the model of Compass Pathway, as I understand it, you will still meet the clinician before the dosing session uh, to understand what you will experience and to talk about uh, what will happen uh, to get an expectation of it. And then on the day of, you'll be monitored by one to two medical professionals when you're being administered uh, these compounds. And then finally, there also tends to be uh, some session, maybe one or two sessions afterwards to talk about what happened and to follow up. So there's a lot of human factor involved that's different uh, than uh, current type of medication use. And then there are uh, other kinds of uh, trial and other uh, therapy that are, again, much more active, right? So the classic example for that would be the mDNA assisted psychotherapy, which is actually even in a more advanced stage now uh, for, for treating PTSD. So that's the effort led, led by MAPS for these clinical trials, they have just completed the second half of their phase three clinical trial. So they completed all of their phase three clinical trial. I haven't seen the actual data yet, but the company said that the result has been positive. Uh, so there is hope that actually, if it's really positive, as they said, then that could be sent to the um, FDA for approval maybe within the next year. So that could be the earliest uh, psychedelic-related type of therapy that we'll see. But for MDMA, it's a much more active process where um, there's actually psychotherapy happening uh, during the dosing session. Yeah, I think that the, the efficacy to which these, the assisted part, the psychotherapy part is needed, I think that's debatable. There's people that think it's very important. There are people that think they're less so. And I think overall, there's just not a whole lot of tests right now um, that go directly head to head comparison of whether they're needed or not. I mean, there's no doubt that psychotherapy alone can help people. Um, it's just that whether if you add on the drug, whether that. Um, or if you do it the drug or without, uh, like, how do those different uh, options compare? Uh, yeah, so for the first part of the uh, paper, we did a, um, a behavioral study um, just to show that, like, human, the drug is short-acting, and then uh, also can elicit psychedelic-like effects um, by this assay called the hedged response. Uh, then for the second part, we also want to look at other types of behavior because uh, actually, one issue right now in animal studies of psychedelic is that there's not a whole lot of um, Behavioral assay that are robust that respond reliably to psychedelics and related compounds. Uh, many of the behavioral assay right now in preclinical studies like with mice are developed with other kinds of medication in mind. So for example, testing SSRI, people would put mouse in a tank of water and see if they swim, or maybe they see if they prefer Food with sucrose it's, uh, sweet, uh, but those are assays that are developed for, again, different mechanisms of action, like different sets of drugs. so it's not really clear as that canella can work with them. So here uh, we decided to test an assay called ultrasonic vocalization, uh, which is another more innate assay. Here in it, the meat, what, what that means is that we're not teaching the mice to do anything. We're just giving the mouse um, these compounds and then watch what they do. Uh, so these are more natural response to the to the compound. And in this case, the ultrasonic vocalization is a behavior that the mouse would elicit when they're in the presence of each other. So for example, a male mice, when they're in the presence of a female mice, they would start to make these auditive, audible vocalization. And they're audible to mice, not to human. Uh, that's why they're called ultrasonic, because they're at a very high frequency range. And the male mice would do this as part of um, their courtship and mounting behavior, uh, again, in the presence of a female. Uh, so in this study, you can see first we uh, have um, uh, two mice, a male mice and a female mice. These are grown-up adult mice uh, in a small arena, and then we have a, a microphone attached on the top. Um, these are a microphone that can pick up ultrasonic vocalization. Uh, actually, a good use of these microphones is if you go outside and you're very interested in uh, the cause of bats. A lot of people use this to record bats um, uh, around sunset. But here we're using it to record mice. And you can see that mice then make these very stereotypical vocalizations, uh, again, in the presence uh, of a female. This is for male mouse. And so you can you can you almost see there's like syllables, they would make them in short and then uh, these uh, vocalizations have different shapes. Uh, and they, it's almost as if they're singing in some sense. Some people describe it as singing, although it's not as complex as that. The goal of the study was to see whether some of the psychedelics, including the one that we're studying, 5-Lenthoxy DMP, might also have an effect on this inner behavior, which uh, is uh, perhaps can reflect also social behavior, because this is a vocalization that happens during a social encounter. Uh, what we see is that um, if we train these mice to, uh, and habituate them to, Elicit this vocalization and then we give them drug and then we test. Uh, what we see is that when we give the classical psychedelic serocybin you can see a reduction of about 30 percent so they vocalize much less. Uh, when we give them a, a dose of 5-methoxy-DMT, this is now a dose 20 member per keg, a dose that's informed by our earlier heteroid response study, you can see that the effect is even greater, it almost completely suppressed 100% these vocalization. So the mouse just stopped vocalizing, making these um, social calls. And then finally, uh, we wanted to see if this effect was specific to psychedelics, uh, whether it's, uh, it's very selective. So we also tested ketamine. Uh, and The reason was that ketamine acts on a different brain receptor, but then it's also used as a rapid-acting an- antidepressant. Um, so we give it a dose that we think correspond to the antidepressant dose. And then maybe, perhaps, disappointingly, we find that ketamine also suppresses the social vocalization. So it doesn't seem like this effect is selected for psychedelic, which is maybe what we're going in hoping for to find a behavior that can allow us to study psychedelics specifically. Uh, but still, I think it's interesting to see that um, these compounds, psilocybin, pamethanthoxy DMT, and ketamine have such a striking effect on the ultrasonic vocalization.
0: I guess I'm curious, um, are these doses where the animals still have a certain level of like consciousness? Because I know at least ketamine is also used as sort of like a sedative dissociative, which means that like, if you give mice enough of it, they will kind of stop moving around and look more like they are unconscious. So are these doses where the mice are still like look awake?
1: Ketamine is a fascinating drug. Um, ketamine was developed uh, initially, actually, as an anesthetic, as you suggested. Uh, it was developed as a safer alternative to PCP um, back in the 60s. And it was used as an anesthetic and still does um, for certain cases, like for horses and in the veget- vegetarian case, and also for sometimes of pediatrics. Um, but that's at high dose, like you said. Uh, at slightly lower dose, but still a um, psychoactive dose. Uh, this is where uh, it could act as a rapid active antidepressant. So here the, the drug is no longer anesthetic, uh, but it has these uh, uh, rapid uh, antidepressant effect. What's interesting about ketamine is uh, there's also an acute effect with ketamine, right? So this is uh, why ketamine is also used as, as a recreational drug you can get a uh, dissociative effects, so it's more of a, people describe it as an out-of-body type of experience. There are also perceptual changes, so it's related, I think, to psychedelic effect in some dimensions, for example, the perceptual change, but it's different in other play, other cases. I don't think steocybin is as likely to elicit these kind of dissociation. So there's some overlap in the acute um, behavior, and then interestingly, ketamine also has these longer lasting antidepressant effects. Uh, so, ketamine uh, is much more developed. And then, um, I think as many people know, three years ago, it was approved uh, as a potential uh, as, as a treatment uh, for major depression, or more specifically treatment resistant depression. Um, and that was the S nasal spray. So, now there's a lot of ketamine infusion clinic. So, here we use that as a comparison, I think, mean, because um, it at a different brain receptor it has some almost comparable behavioral effect both in terms of the acute uh, behavioral changes uh, and then also the longer lasting antidepressant effect um, so if you go on to the paper we did a little bit more analysis uh, one of the interesting thing about these social vocalization is you can also characterize different types of social social vocalization based on uh, just the sound of them uh, Some of them have a very simple sound staying at kind of one pitch. Some of them are more complex, where the pitch would go up and then down. Uh, and some of them go just upwards, some of them just go down. And here, we actually apply a machine learning algorithm to automatically detect all of these uh, vocalizations that the mouse uh, had made and then classify them. And uh, interestingly, not only do these drugs suppress the vocalization, they also shift the type of the vocalization that the mouse make. Uh, I think it's a little hard to see in the data because there's so many types. Uh, the uh, machine learning algorithm identifies 11 types. But overall, the, the general trend seems to be that the, the animal made less of the complex vocalization, and they, instead they made more of the simpler vocalization, where there's only one pitch rather than some of these um, shifts in pitches. Uh, so it's a little unclear what this means. I think it's just one observation that we have noticed. I think the you know the research on what these vocalizations signify for the mouse is is not really clear. So overall, yeah, this part um, shows that you know in addition to the head response that many of the research lab does, there is at least another in the behavior where these drugs, um, the psychedelics, can have a very strong effect on and that's the ultrasonic vocalization, uh, which relate to the social aspects of their behavior.
2: I'm just more curious of now, like how that translates to people. Now that we've seen what happens with mice and their vocalizations, how that translates to like when people are using it.
1: Yeah. So for 5-MeO DMT, again, people describe the experience as very intense, um, the acute psychedelic experience, much more so than psirocybin. Uh In fact, it might be also a little bit more dissociative than uh, uh And then maybe a little less perceptual for some people. Um, So there are a lot of nuances in the subjective effect between the different psychedelic compounds, which I think is actually one of the more fascinating things about these compounds because there are thousands of different analogs of psychedelics, uh, and they each have just slightly different variation on the types of subjective experience they elicit. It has to do with um, the neurochemistry and how they act on the brain. And then here, uh, I mean, the motivation for studying the social aspect is that these psychedelics also uh, has been known to affect social behavior in animals, in in humans, I mean. A related compound, MDMA, is known to be quite uh, pro-social, right? Um, That's ecstasy. That's the one that we talked about um, on being on trial for treating PTSD. Psychedelic is less so, but also has some of those tendencies. And people will report uh, to be uh, more connected uh, with uh, others to some extent, but also to the world. Uh, so here, I think one of the uh, uh, thing that inspired us to, to look at this assay was um, it's harder to establish social behavior in mice. So they don't you know, talk with others. They don't hug each other. Uh, but instead, uh, this is one way we can look at it and quantify it. And this is the type of social behavior that they do where uh, during courtship, they would make these vocalizations. It's one of their um, more naturalistic behavior. Um, then I think going more forward um, on the next part, so the first two part talk about some of the characterization of these compounds in behavior, and then really just trying to show that this compound is a um, psychedelic and psychoactive for so the 5 meo CMP in mice that we can measure. Uh, and then I think the, the figure three, the third uh, figure for this paper is where the bulk of the uh, result is. Um, it's the more the most central finding of this paper which is where now we really try to look at now the um, potential for this compound to elicit or enhance neuroplasticity. So to do that, uh, we use a method called um, two-photon microscopy, which is a laser scanning imaging method. It's an optical method, Uh, so we have these optical microscopes in the lab, and then what it allows us to do is to work with live mice and then image into their brains directly so how we do that is that we uh, would we'll take the mouse and then we would uh, replace the skull with a piece of, uh, with a piece of glass window. And maybe that's because the skull tend to be very scattering with light. If we want to look into the brain with high resolution then we want it to be uh, have optical transmission. So we replace it with a piece of glass window. And this allows us to basically shoot laser into the mouse's head to visualize individual neurons at high resolution. Some of the images that you can see from the paper are uh, some of the images that we take from the microscope. You can see the individual processes from the neuron. So in the brain, the neuron has a cell body. And then a unique aspect of a brain cell is that it makes a lot of connections. So it extends all these little processes out. Uh, even though the cell body itself is only about 10 micron in size, the processes can go on for about 100 micron. Um, so it send all these um, small processes out, and then that's how the processes connect, and that's how the neurons make the connection and talk with each other. Uh, so what you see there is that uh, we can image these uh, processes, also known as dendrites. And then you can also see on the dendrite, you can see the little protrusion, the little parts that come out of it, um, the little knobs that are called dendritic spine. And that's the exact location where the neurons connect with each other uh, and make synapses. Each of the primary neurons can make on the order of 10,000 synapses. Uh, and here we're looking at just a subset of them, but we can see them individually uh, using this laser scanning microscopy method. Uh, so what we do then is to track these individual dendritic spines or sites of neural connection over days. Uh, first, we image for a, a couple of times. Uh, three days and one day before we actually administer the drug, and then we would administer the psychedelic biomethoxy DMT into the brain, or in another set of mice, we would administer a vehicle, so these are controlled mice, and then we use the same imaging method to go back to the same location and track it for multiple sessions afterwards and uh, subsequent days, and then we can see just by comparing the same pieces of dendrite and dendritic spines, whether the mouse have gained some neural connections or maybe they have lost some, or maybe most of them uh, actually stay stable. In fact, most of them don't change. Uh, you might not actually want your neural wire to change so much. So what we found is that typically most of these um, connections are rather stable, but there are some that are being gained or lost. And the big question here is then whether psychedelic 5 uh, DMP can Enhance neuroplasticity? Can we see it structurally? And then also if it does, then what is the time scale of it and how long can we observe this change?
3: Could you cause I'm still having a hard time like figuring like, out like what exactly a synapsis is?
1: Yeah. So in uh synapsis is the place where two neurons connect with each other. Neurons are the brain cells, mm-hmm. and they the cells need to physically connect uh in close proximity to be able to communicate with each other. And then that connection uh, is the synapse. Uh, so normally in a brain, a neuron is electrically active, uh, and then that voltage gets sent down uh, to, uh, to different parts of the cell. And then as a synapse is when uh, it converts to chemical transmission, um, it releases a chemical called glutamate. And then that glutamate flows from one cell to the other, Um, allowing basically information to transmit from one cell to the other. And then now the other cell knows the first neuron has fire and trying to communicate with it. And that's how information gets propagated within the brain. Uh, So if if you will, I mean, a a good way to think about it is that if you know where all the synapses are and what neurons connect with each other, it gives you like a wiring diagram of the brain. If you think of a, a, a circuit, like an electrical circuit and how resistor, capacitor, things like that get wired up to form a circuit board. Here you have the brain, and you have different neurons, which are the individual components, and how they wire up is through synapses. Uh, and uh, the, except that in the brain is so much, so much more dense, each neuron actually have 10,000 synapses. So the connectivity is very, very dense. And that's actually one of the remarkable things about the brain. Um, in total, there's, uh, in our brain at least, there's 80 billion cells. And then each cell uh, in here in the cortex has about 10,000 synapses. So the amount of connection is, is great. Uh, and the power of this method, again, why we chose to study animal here, why not study human, is that uh, uh, because we can acquire these type of high-resolution images in the uh, animal's brain. We can visualize individual synapses uh, in here as dendritic spines. Uh, Whereas in in a human, uh, the current technology, uh, because we're human, we cannot do these type of um, a little bit more invasive experiment. Uh, You can use things like magnetic resonance imaging or MRI. Uh, Another imaging method would be, for example, CAT scan. Uh, Those methods tend to have much lower resolution, uh, which does not allow you to see these kinds of um, uh, connections between neurons uh, that we can see in the mouse. Yeah, so I think... Another value of this type of research is that um, you might heard a lot of talk, for example, if you read Michael Pollan's book, you know, How to Change Your Mind, or um, other people, there's been a lot of suggestion that, ah, I think psychedelic can change your mind, it can cause plastic changes. Uh, but so far, there hasn't been too, many, too much evidence that it actually happened, scientific evidence. Um, so this kind of imaging study really allows you to see if that's happening, because you can go and see the individual neuronal connection and go count them, and then say, oh, is there more, are there less? so um, uh, to provide that level of evidence and proof that, oh yeah, um, and then how and then then the next thing is how much there is actually changing and whether we can manipulate that kind of plasticity.
0: Right, I guess that's an interesting question is does this increase in connections happen everywhere in the brain or just in specific places?
1: We jumped the gun a little bit, I guess, but we um, the next part was like the 5-methoxy-DMP does increase its spine intensity. Uh, but I think, yes, that is a very interesting question because here we're imaging uh, a one particular area in the brain. Again, we're taking these high resolution images, so we're focusing on one area. We're not imaging the whole brain of the mouse. Uh, the area that we focus in is called the uh, anterior cingulate cortex of the mouse, which also relates to the cingulate cortex in human. So that's the frontal lobe uh, in the front of our brain, uh, the related region. And we chose that region because this is a region that's known to be affected in uh, depression. Uh, so if you do PET scan in humans, uh, it's known that uh, you have a substantial loss of synapses or loss of the neural connection in uh, humans with severe depression. Uh, because of that loss of circuitry in human, we decided to focus on the analogous location on the mouse to see if this drug has an effect. Uh, but it is a fair question to ask whether um, this drug might have effect on different brain area. Uh, the interesting thing here is that the drug; these drugs are always administered systemically, which means that uh, they get to everywhere, right? Because um, for human, you would smoke it, it goes in your bloodstream, and it goes everywhere. In a mouse, we uh, inject it with a syringe, and then it also goes everywhere. So it has the potential to affect uh, many different brain areas. But then whether it actually affects the brain area, it depends on the local uh, neural circuitry, whether it has certain receptors or not. So here, we for this study, we did not look at other brain regions to uh, answer that question, whether it affects other brain region. Uh, but in a previous study where we studied psilocybin, we actually did look at some other brain area. In addition to the cingulate cortex, uh, we look at deeper area of the uh, medial prefrontal cortex. We also look at another area, uh, the motor cortex. And we find that some of these plasticity-inducing effects of serocybin was quite widespread. We can see signs of plasticity in some of these other brain regions as well. So again, I think the drugs act more widely uh, than what is maybe uh, being implied by this type of study, where we're just looking at one brain region, uh, is something to keep in mind. That uh, yeah, I think uh, it's a concerted action of these drugs on the brain circuitry that makes its effect not on a particular region.
3: Oh, well, you're saying that like it. Um... And it hits to the uh, serotonin receptor in the brain, correct Is that also in the frontal cortex?
1: Yes, psychedelic acts on a different kinds of serotonin receptor. Turns out there are, I believe, 14 different subtypes of serotonin receptors in the brain. So these different compounds, they bind to different receptors differently. So the most well-known serotonin receptor for psychedelic research is the serotonin 2A receptor. Uh, the reason is that that's the receptor that's now to be established as being responsible for the psychedelic trip, um, and that's for human studies. Uh, so the evidence is quite decent. So if you give a human a uh, dr- another drug that would block the serotonin two A receptors before you give them psychedelic, they may no longer trip. Um, you can look. At, you also look at the amount of these receptors in the brain and how available they are, and then correlate with how much uh, people is tripping, how strong that subjective effect is, and the correlation also quite high. So there's good evidence that these serotonin 2A receptors uh, are responsible for the trip, but there are also many other subtypes and people think that the other subtypes could also be important. And it's an open question on which subtype actually contribute to the beneficial effect, whether it's the same subtype, the 2A receptor, or it could be a different subtype that might be responsible for some of the benefits. And yes, um, the 2A subtype, and then also some of the other sub- major subtypes like 1A and 2C, they're all present in the frontal cortex of humans and also in mice. Uh, but they're also actually present in many other areas in the brain. I think that's why it makes it quite um, difficult to pin down just based on the receptor alone, uh, where the drug might add. Uh, because uh, serotonin itself, which is where these drugs bind to, serotonin itself is also uh, and important neurochemicals that normally exist in the human brain. Um, what these drugs do is, is sort of just hijack the existing receptor system that's already in the brain to perform their function. Um, so with the fiber methoxy DMT, you know, using this method where we can visualize the individual neuronal connection as dendritic spines, you can see the uh, result here, where what happened when we actually image the number of these dendritic spines over days, before and after we give methoxy DMP, You see that fairly rapidly on day one, the first time when we image these mice after the drug administration, we can see a rise of about 15% in the number density. Uh, what this means is we observe more dendritic spines, uh, which is an indicator of more neural connections in the frontal cortex of these mouse. This increase um, and difference from the vehicle group uh, persists over time. Uh, until really the last time point when we looked at, which is 34 days, about a month after the drug administration. So one of the questions that we had, if you remember earlier on, was that whether some of these shorter acting psychedelic might also have a fairly short plasticity effect, or whether they have any plasticity effect at all. It seems like um, the result suggests that, yes, they do induce uh, plasticity. And then furthermore, the plasticity can also be quite long. Um, so it provides um, a suggestion, uh, indication that the acute effect and that duration might not be so much coupled to the duration of the long-term plasticity, the structural process that we can observe. Okay. I mean, you have to remember a month is actually quite long uh, for a mouse lifetime. A mouse; These mice typically live on the order of about two years. Uh, I don't think you can translate it exactly like that, but for a mouse at least, it's, it's quite a long time. Um, so the number increase of about 15%, we can, we can see it still. Um, um, quite a long time after uh, the initial drug administration. The second component that we looked at is in, instead of just counting whether there are uh, more or less of these dendritic spines, you can also ask, well, how big were the dendritic spines? And the reason for looking at the size is because the size actually relates to the strength of that synaptic connection. Um, and what that means is that um, how strong is that connection? So if the first neuron fires and have electrical activity, how much of that glutamate is released and um, and then actually received by the second neuron. You can have a strong synaptic strength where if the first neuron fire, it leads to a big signal in the second cell, or you can have a weak synaptic strength, which is uh, even though the first neuron fire, the second cell uh, responds but only weakly. So that uh, there's also um, tuning in the synaptic weight and how strong that effect is. And then that size of the dendroid spine, how big it is really relate to the connection strength So one could also then um, suspect, and as we have shown previously for different psychedelic psilocybin, not only can it increase the density, but it also increase the size of the dendritic spine and make them bigger and stronger. Here, again, to our surprise, uh, it seems that these uh, properties are not coupled. Although we see that the five-methoxy-DMT, like psilocybin, increase the number of dendritic spine, we see that it actually did not change the size of the dendritic spine, meaning that it did not make them stronger. So they're more, but they're not necessarily stronger. So the plasticity that is induced uh, seems to be different for these two psychedelics.
2: Would you say they're um, like the benefit towards having more of these um, spines than having like the um, stronger? connections, would you say it would be better for, like, think having more of them or having, like, them be larger? Or do you want, like, a good balance of both?
1: Yeah. So I think that gave it a, a good um, question on talking about why do we want changes in dendritic spines and why do we want these things, um, uh, the connectivity to change in our brain uh, to begin with. I think um, that then gives a sense on why these observations might be important and could be a mechanism for the beneficial effects. Normally, in the brain, you probably don't actually want to see that much wiring change uh, because you have your treasure memory, and you have your skills, and um, you have these things in your brain that are wired, and you don't necessarily want to change a whole lot of it. But then there are cases where you do want to be adaptive. So uh, when people look at uh, adult mice and see when do these connections change, it tend to occur when the mouse receive a new experience. Uh, for example, maybe when they uh, have new perception or if they're learning something new Uh, so uh, for example people teach mouse to do certain reaching tasks like motor tasks and then when they're actually learning and gaining these new experiences and that's when you see a lot of these dendroid spine change and wiring changes yeah so it seems to allow the circuits to adapt and be able to be flexible in the wiring in order to adapt to new changes to think about why these changes in the plasticity might be important in a drug effect, we think this could be one reason why when people experience psychedelics uh, could be quite important for the subsequent benefit. Uh, so the subjective experience, a lot of people uh, cited that as something that's very memorable and very important for their life. And there's also some clinical evidence to show that, that the intensity of that subjective experience mm-hmm. also can correlate with some of the clinical outcome. So that part, that, that initial experience could be quite important um, for the benefit. Uh, so what this suggests then is that uh, enhanced plasticity could be one way in which those new experiences are being integrated into the circuit and being um, functionally ingrained. Um, so this heightened plasticity is really a mechanism um, to uh, allow us to yeah, integrate that experience into it that then eventually again solidify that beneficial experience. So I think this is one hypothesis for why the enhanced plasticity might be important and which goes hand in hand also, I think, with the argument then why maybe some psychotherapy during this time might be useful um, to couple with the enhanced integration. That's one, I think, hypothesis. <laughs> but then there's an the alternative hypothesis. I think with science, there's always different kinds of hypotheses. The other uh, things is a bit more biological, uh, which is I, I mentioned previously that there's also evidence that there's synapse loss in the frontal cortex with people with depression. Uh, so there are also some people that believe that, oh, maybe this has not so much to do with this um, subjective experience that people have, and maybe the trip is really not needed, but it's much more of a biological explanation that you have. You started off with synapse loss just because of depression, and here you're really normalizing that loss by a growth of new synapses. Um, so factors like stress and um, genetics and other things that predispose to depression that might cause uh, uh, retraction of dendritic spines and a loss of synaptic um, uh, connect- connectivity and here you have a drug that promote growth and to replace some of those loss connections. And that's a much more biological explanation.
2: It's fascinating.
1: But again, I think that what's interesting is, um, uh, yeah, we look at when these growth occur, which is a timing that's, I think, important, uh, which I think speaks to when these drugs are really active. And then I think it provides a window, like the timing where suggests that maybe that's when the, any kind of psychotherapy might be the most effective or any kind of conjunctive treatment might be most useful. And then the fourth figure for this, this is a relatively short paper, um, but in the fourth figure, uh, the last figure here, um, instead of just looking at the number of the neural connection and also the strength of them, uh, here we're looking at changes. uh, Because again, here we're taking advantage of the fact that we can just go back and look at the same connection over time. Uh, We can also ask, okay, if we see there are more neural connection, is it because that there is a gain of neural connection. There's just more neural connection forming, or is it because that uh, the existing neural connections are a little bit more resistant to elimination? Because you know that normally there's also turnover within the brain, right? As we learn, as we adapt, there's a normal rate of turnover. These connections being formed and being eliminated. So you can achieve an increase. You know, if you have more formation going on, or if you have less elimination, or maybe a bit of both. Um, So here, looking across, we can see that really is the formation of new neural connection that's contributing um, to the new, uh, the higher density, the higher numbers of dendritic spines that we see Uh, by comparing images that we can see from day one, day three, day five, um, after the drug administration, we can really clearly see that it's not really the the elimination of the dendritic spines or the connections is really just the addition of new ones that we can see in these animals that contribute to the higher density of dendritic spines. And again, going back to that timing, which I think is quite important, uh, you can see that that increase in the formation rate is almost exclusively in day one. The density, the number increase is quite persistent, but that addition of the dendritic spine, a lot of it just happened right on the first day, and then they just stick there afterwards. Um, the elimination rate does not really change uh and then the formation rate really also go back to baseline uh between sort of phase three and phase five so the elevated type of plasticity potential and the propensity to form synapse is rather short uh, but then the effect is it stays there is for a while
3: i was actually uh, looking at the graphs while you were explaining that and it's actually really like definitely that first onset of it spikes on the uh formation rate was vastly different
1: yeah, yeah we, we see that the first day this is also true somewhat for pseudocybin we also see an increase in formation rate right, and no change for elimination we've also actually done a very similar study with ketamine and this is sort of where my research lab have all started where we initially uh way back almost 10 years ago now we started working with ketamine and trying to understand its action and then about three or four years ago we switched to studying psychedelic we've also done a very similar study in ketamine we also see ketamine <laughs> Um, have similar effect, although the duration is shorter than these psychedelic. So here I show you the density can maintain up to a month, but for ketamine is shorter, it's actually starting at about two weeks time point, we can see it start to fall off. But then the increase in number density is also driven by increase in formation of new spines, which is also within the first uh, day or two. So yeah, I think that also is a segue to why I think people are excited about this research. It's also because of the timescale of the finding that we show. Uh, the in- that increase in the neural connection, again, for psychedelic lasts for about a month. For ketamine, it lasts for about two weeks. Those timescales actually matches quite well with what people have reported in the clinic. So for ketamine, if you receive a single infusion, you have an efficacy window of about one to two weeks. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of people then have to go back to clinic and receive a repeated infusion with the hope that over time, maybe you can start to space it out. And then for psychedelic, at least some of the preliminary uh, clinical trials show that the uh, benefit, benefits can potentially be a lot longer. Uh, so the fact that these neural circuit changes, the timescale actually matches with the um, clinical finding is intriguing uh, because there's not a whole lot of things you can find in the brain that changes for such a long time. When you initially give the drug, a lot of things are changing in the brain. But in terms of long-term changes, um, these are some of the few things that you can really reliably observe that then again matches the um, time course of the benefits that we see.
2: It's awesome. That is awesome.
0: You mentioned a couple of times that there's sort of two camps in how psych- psychedelics are working to achieve this sort of long-lasting antidepressant effect, and one of them is that you need the trip, and it's this sort of like mind-opening uh, and life. Uh, changing experience that then uh, produces these antidepressant effects, and there's another camp that's very biological and saying like it's this it's purely the increase in these uh, connections between the neurons because of the interaction with the receptor. Do you
1: fall into one of those? Yeah, I think here I'm going to put on my scientist hat and just say I don't think there's enough evidence for me to say either way. I, I just have to wait to see more more data. They both have compelling reasons. I think the camp that leans toward the, that subjective experience in porn, a lot of those are uh, clinicians, the people who actually give people psychedelics. Uh, this is a bit of a segue, but it turns out it's really hard to blind a psychedelic trial because you can give them placebo and the pill look the same, but the people just respond very differently. Uh, the, so the people know right? a lot of times whether they have received a psychedelic just because of their acute experience, but the clinician also lo- knows <laughs> just by seeing the people's respond. And then a lot of these people that um, are actively participating, uh, they really swear that I, that, that that initial experience is quite important. And who am I to argue? I mean, I, I'm not the one that actually have seen these transformative change in the clinic, right? Uh, firsthand. And then the second, but the second part uh, of the people that tends to think the psychedelic experience are not needed are, I, I would say, more of the neurobiologists and the chemists. And there's a, a number of compounds now, I think a handful of them, where you can start to engineer compounds that can activate the same receptor, the 5-HT2A, the serotonin-3 receptor, but without uh, actually potentially eliciting a trip. Well, that's a that's that's misnomer a, because most of these compounds so far have been tested on animals. So I've explained to you the hedonic response. So when you test it on animals, on mice, they don't have the hedonic response. And then so many of the, I think the neurobiology group extrapolate to say that maybe they're not hostilogenic then. Uh, as far as I know, they have not been tested in humans to really see if they're hostogenic or not. Uh, but what I'm saying is, again, there's new chemicals that uh, purportedly are non-hostilogenic, but yet they're serotonin-2A receptors. So I think it is a testable hypothesis now. Um, and some of these compounds are going to eventually be brought to the clinic and then see whether they have any depressant properties. Um, so maybe in you know three to five years we might start to see some evidence and there, there's obviously a lot of advantage to that i mean i think i think we, sh- we should also talk about some of the limitations of this i think that in, in the media there's a lot of uh, hype and a lot of uh, uh, talk about the benefits but maybe less so about um some of the caveats or psychedelics uh and it's and, and actually as a result why it might be useful to engineer out some of these effects uh if you want to use it as a treatment one of the Uh, Key issues with psychedelic is that uh, it interact with the serotonin two A receptor, and that's actually also how antipsychotic medication work, uh, which is to inhibit these receptors as opposed to activate them. Um, So you can imagine it's kind of pushing and pulling. So it turns out that psychedelic uh, is also really just not suitable for any anybody with um, predisposition to psychotic symptoms or any kind of manic episode. So if you have any kind of family history or genetic history or genetic predisposition uh, for these kinds of uh, mental illnesses, you really should not be taking psychedelic, which could exacerbate the symptoms. Um, and then another thing is that uh, peripherally, your heart also has a lot of serotonin receptors there. So it's also not really good to take a lot of psychedelics repeatedly. Uh many cases in recreationally and also even in some of these clinical trials, you're not doing that. You just uh, and people don't really abuse it that much. I mean you take it, but not not frequently. Uh but if you if you end up do doing that uh more frequently, you could also have heart issues uh, because there's a lot of serotonin receptors and it causes heart valve problems. So there are a number of these uh I think uh concerns that I think tends to be gloss over by the media right now i think the media always swing right initially these drugs are very dangerous now like they're panacea and can treat everything under the sun and then eventually we'll probably settle down to somewhere in the middle uh where people have to weigh the, the benefits against the um the caveats the and the side effects um and then i think one way to move forward also to engineer different uh analogs so some of these uh newer compounds, second generation or third generation psychedelics might be less prone to some of these side effects.
3: Now you said like generations of like, uh, like, sorry, I'm drawing a blank on the word right now, but the the generations of them, like what exactly do you mean by that?
1: Yeah, when I said that, I'm thinking about um, these compounds that I'm studying right now, like psilocybin, 5-methoxy-DMP, or DMT that we mentioned, LSD is the first generation, in that these are compounds that were known since the 60s, Many of these compounds also tend to be naturally occurring. Um, So then they have also cultural uh, history of of use dating back to a long time. And then when I think about second generation, uh, or even, I guess, (laughs) later generation, I'm more thinking of compound that people now have started to engineer. So what they would take psilocybin and they would modify um, the different side chains chemically to make related compounds, but they're slightly different chemically, so they have slightly different properties. Uh, so that's what I'm thinking. And you can see throughout drug development, this is a common thing, right? Um, if you look at aspirin, uh, it is also initially derived from a natural compound. There's a different compound, but they have side effects. So then uh, you gradually engineer a compound to try to uh, make it have less and less, fewer and fewer side effects, and they eventually you know, arrive at something that uh, could be more widely used. Um, and I think, I don't see why psychedelic would be different, Um, although there's, and that psychedelic is interesting, again, because of the cultural aspect and the societal aspect. There are people that swear that I have to take the natural compound because, you know, that's from nature. And there are a lot of people who think that um, these compounds, again, because of the history, they have certain significance. But I'm more open-minded than that. I think they can probably be engineered and improved just because they originally exist in a mushroom, like psilocybin doesn't mean that that has to be the best version of it i think it can be improved and engineered and um uh and changed so yeah that's what i meant when i say sort of the next generation of psychedelics
2: it'd definitely be fascinating to see the like the future of psychedelics and how that evolves in that sense as well
0: do you i mean i know you're not a clinician do you have any insight into like you said earlier uh people are now or the media is now sort of sensationalizing psychedelics as a panacea. They can, you know, oh, they can treat depression. They can treat anxiety. They can treat eating disorders. They can treat like, you know, literally name a psychiatric condition and people have said they can treat it. Um, is, do you have any insight onto to what extent that is grounded in reality as opposed to like wild speculation? Cause everybody's super interested in these compounds right now.
1: I don't exactly know where all the um, claims come from. I mean, some of it I think is true, as in, I don't think depression is the only indication. I think there's some good evidence for other indications that would be useful for uh, psychedelic uh, treatment. So, uh, we've already talked about PTSD and MDMA, and there's also some trial now looking at psilocybin um, for uh, PTSD. Uh, some of the other more uh, advanced clinical trial that really show some striking effects are. Um, Substance use disorder. So there is a lot of um, evidence from for alcohol use disorder uh, from work from uh, New York University, from NYU. Uh, also uh, nicotine use disorder. This is like with smoking. Uh, and these are the anecdotes. is is, is striking. Like there are people who would smoke for twenty years and then they would like stop. Um, it's it's hard to argue against that kind of uh, experience. So there are some. And then also I think another one that has some very uh, exciting result is cluster headache. So these are repeated headaches um, that uh, comes almost sometimes for some people during the same time in the day that are very debilitating, and there's just no treatment. So I think there are some indications that, are, that, are, that, that could be could be helped, and these are being actively tested. Um, and then, yeah, there are a lot of also other uh, I think claims that are based on less evidence. I uh, think the good thing is now there's a lot of yeah, different clinical trials to try to tease out you know, what might be real, what might not be real. Um, so I think we'll start to see hopefully some of these things um, get tested out and see. I think there's um, one one driving factor would be I think commercial interest. There's a lot of startup companies and companies starting up to to test for different indications, and that could and each of them want to have a unique angle. So I think that could be one reason why uh, it, it started to be try to be applied to different indications. Uh, this is not unique to psychedelic, but I think it's been done a little bit more so just because the uh, the startup cost for a psychedelic company is slightly lower than other kinds of drug development. Because if you think about other drugs, uh, you have to first establish safety through a lot of um, initial testing. But psychedelic is different. The psychedelic already exists. You already know <laughs> where, to, where what it is. Um, and it's already um, decades of research suggesting it's safe. So you can skip a lot of that initial stuff or accelerate it compared to a normal drug discovery. I think that's why a lot of people are jumping in because you, you have this, um, this early start. Although later on it's just the same difficulty where you have to run these big trials, um, so I think we'll also see the industry part getting weaned out and shrink uh, quickly. But I think yeah, these are some factors that maybe contribute to, to the current state and of in the media, just why why psychedelic is uh, is hyped so much. Do you
0: think that um, psychedelics are going to go in a similar direction as cannabis legalization, where it kind of went this medical route of first uh, medical cannabis became Legal in a number of different states, and now um, recreational cannabis is sort of fo- uh, following suit. Do you think psychedelics are kind of going to go the same way?
1: I'm not an expert in this, but I I, I do think that um, the people that are pushing the medicalization and also the legalization are taking a lot of the blueprint from the cannabis uh, side of things, just because there's certain similarity in that the cannabis is also controlled substance, and then. Um, there's legalization and medicalization issues, and then psychedelic is a very similar thing. So they're kind of taking that playbook to some extent and then bring it to in different aspects. Um, and then you, you can see that the result of that is also similar, right? As in, like, we're taking the leaf of cannabis now. You can see that uh, many cities and then even some of the states now have decriminalized psychedelics. And then it might take a similar route on the medical side as well where even if some of these treatments are approved, for example, the MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for PTSD, you might also see um, distinctions where that whole thing has to come as a package in terms of a, as an approved treatment, So then it doesn't really change the controlled substance um, act and how it's classified. Yeah, I, th- I think there are kind of many similarities that one, one could draw. And you can see a lot of crossover too. Um, we talked a little bit about the industry, there's a lot of cannabis company that then get converted to psychedelic companies. <laughs> after the uh, cannabis, they make the money and then after the cannabis maybe now a little bit more steady state go uh, cool to make more money over the psychodelic to see some of that. Yeah, I think there, there are definitely similarities there.
3: I'd definitely love to see like how it like affects here on the East Coast, because the East Coast has been very what's the word I'm trying to think of, like hard to get either uh, kind of been starting up and everything, at least like medically practicing and everything from what I've heard, it, especially in Pennsylvania. I think that's
1: actually one thing that people talk about like especially for mdma where okay it might be approved soon right given all the positive data but do we really have that network of provider do we have that clinic and you have all this assisted psychotherapy where do you train all these people and how do you make sure they're adequately trained it's just a very different model of care and it also can you even get insurance to pay for it because it's so different and if you can treat it in one single one single time then what does it mean for other kinds of treatment? <laughs> if you're if you're a drug company, do you really want to have this? <laughs> you, you run it one or a couple of times, you're, you're done. <laughs> so, yeah, there's a lot of these questions that are um, that are quite disruptive and not answered.
0: Yeah, that was actually something I was going to ask about. Um companies getting into psychedelics is like how because yeah like you said it's kind of a you do a couple of treatments and you see a long lasting effect it's not exactly the model that drug companies typically go for where you know their biggest you know money making drugs are ones that you need to take sort of chronically so do, do you know how that is working at all like how do, how do they plan to
1: yeah i don't i don't know so much. All I can say is that um, right now, a lot of the companies working in the post and developing drugs, the companies are either new or small. And a lot of the traditional pharmaceutical company, I'm sure they're aware, just that I don't think they have any overt sign of getting into it yet for uh, I don't know what reason. Maybe they want to see more before they, um, they get into it, or maybe again, it doesn't kind of jive with their existing model of how to make money. Yeah, and it's also true that a company point of view is how to make money, so I think that's a very different consideration. Uh, let's say that you can show that steocybin, um uh, with the uh, uh, kind of guided in um, a guided administration uh, is demonstrated to be efficacious. Uh, can you actually make that a profitable treatment? I was stopping somebody then from, uh, I think, if it's legalized, go out and just go eat some mushroom themselves instead of buying this expensive drug um, from the company? Right. But, uh, so there's also issues about, yeah, how, how do you actually make money out of this and how do you patent it and so forth? Um, or the, at least the classical, again, is kind of more first generation psychedelics.
0: I think just to get a little bit speculative, that might cause the paths of cannabis and psychedelics to diverge potentially, mm. because I think that the, you know, medicalization and more widespread use of cannabis sort of has a synergistic effect where, you know, uh, these companies that are are catering to medical cannabis users and companies that are catering to recreational cannabis users they kind of feed off of each other and oftentimes are the one and the same whereas um if psychedelics were to become uh used as a treatment for particular kinds of uh, mental health diagnoses yeah i think your point is really good that like why wouldn't you just go somewhere else where it's like less because, you know, not it's not only the cost that maybe these companies would charge charge an exorbitant price, but it's also very gate kept by it being, you know, within these clinics in the medical community where not everybody has insurance, not everybody has the means to go to these clinics and get these drugs and even, like find out this is an option for them. so i I think that that might I guess I'm worried that that might mean that. So that might make it less likely for psychedelics to be recreationally legalized because potentially these uh, companies that are catering to medical use will not want that competition.
1: Your, your intuition, I think, is correct. In fact, if you look at some of the uh, people, the money behind some of the effort going against legalization are in fact like companies. No, I think it's actually the intuition is completely correct. They don't They do necessarily, I don't think the interest is aligned. So there are, group, there are a group of people that initially started these, a lot of philanthropists, where I think it's aligned. Yes, they wanted. some of the people wanted to demonstrate their medical use because they wanted to have it more widespread and be legalized. But over time, there are other people, yeah, particularly um, commercial interests, that where those are not
3: aligned. That's a very good point, because that's one thing we've seen with, like, cannabis and everything there's a lot of organizations like that are pushing for like same uh, i think it's sam uh, or something like that where it's like in massachusetts as an anti-cannabis organization and there's like quite a bit of them funded by like certain corporations and everything
0: i like to end every episode with a bit of a question for all of you so for for all of you um what is something that you are excited to see in this field going forward
3: well, I guess for me, it's just more of the the medical usages that we learned and everything and how that would work more and everything. I'm excited to see like the science behind it. I'm definitely
2: excited to see how we're talking about like the rebuilding of some of those synapses in the frontal cortex of the brain because of like long-term depression and see how maybe how speculative seeing in the future if that could be something that can be used to help replace some of those and maybe reverse some of the negative effects of depression on the brain.
1: Yeah, for me... Uh, my lab will so, so just keep following up on this research I mean here we're showing the structural plasticity I'm hopeful that in the next five years so within the next five years or so we can start to figuring out you know what are some of the molecular signals that actually drive these changes and and it also gets a bit more specific in terms of like what are some of the cell types and what are some of the brain region um, some of the details on where these plasticity are happening um, so I'm excited to yeah, dive deeper into um, this process
0: great well uh, thank you all for being on the show today
3: thank you for having
0: yeah, us Yeah, thanks for having us yeah
1: thanks it was fun
0: before we go uh do any of you have anything to promote any social media i know um raven and Esmodius, you are on another podcast do you want to tell listeners a little bit about that
2: yeah, so um, we like we kind of said when we introduced ourselves, we're the co-hosts of Smoking Out the Closet. Um, we talk about the intersectionality between the LGBTQ and the cannabis communities and uh, life events going on within those two, important news updates. Uh, we talk a little bit about you know our life in Pittsburgh, stuff that's going on in the community.
3: Kind of some information, like when it gets released, like some of the science stuff we find in everything or like how things work as best as we can. And like our perspective is uh, people working
2: in the The cannabis industry and the medical industry in Pennsylvania. So, yeah, we release new episodes every Tuesday. Um, We are on all of the social medias in some form as Smoking Out the Closet, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. We have a TikTok.
0: Very cool. Yeah, I'll link those in the show description and uh, you all should go check that out. And then, uh, Alex, anything to plug? Uh, where can people find you on social media? Learn more about your research.
1: Uh, I, have a, I have a Twitter account which I post regularly. Um, you can search by name. It's Quan Alex C. I usually post some uh, uh, things about uh, recent research uh, on, including on psychedelics, and I also post uh, pretty fluorescence images of the brain sometimes.
2: That's cool.
0: I that is one of my favorite parts of science. Honestly, is pretty brain pictures. Well, um, with that, we're going to wrap it up for this episode. We have been discussing the paper 5-methoxy-DMT Modifies Innate Behaviors and Promotes Structural Neural Plasticity in Mice by Sarah J. Jefferson et al. Um, our expert for this episode has been Dr. Alex Kwan, and our guests have been Raven and Asmodius of Smoking Out the Closet. Our music is by Sam Brunwasser. You can find more of his work at soundcloud.com slash visualsnowbeats. As always, you can download the paper and read the transcriptions at inplainenglishpod.org. And make sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Plain Sci. That's P-L-A-I-N-E-N-G-L-I-S-H-S-C-I. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time for another episode of In Plain English.